All right, folks, it's the bottom of the ninth here on a misty, dreary night in San Diego. Gosh, now ain't that a phrase you just don't need to say often. Well, Doc Ellis is back out here for the ninth. Didn't see that one coming. With a no-hitter going here through eight innings, and what a no-hitter it's been, folks. Doc Ellis, well, it's been unconventional to say the least. And in steps the catcher, Chris Canizaro, San Diego's first chance here in the ninth. Chris is 0 for 3 here tonight with one walk, having a fine season, and oh, it's a fly ball to center field, and that will be out number one here in the ninth. As I was saying, folks, what a night, as pinch hitter Van Kelly bats here for the shortstop, Tommy Dean batting eight. Doc Ellis has been wild all night with eight walks and a hits batsman, but he has yet to allow a hit. Oh, I shouldn't even be saying that lest I jinx the game. But Doc's performance has been erratic, including him diving out of the way of a ball that, well folks, that came nowhere near him, and now Kelly will ground to the first baseman who flips over to Doc Ellis, covering first for the out. And now that's two outs here in the ninth. And now up to the plate comes Ed Spezio, the hard-hitting third baseman, currently pinch-hitting for the pitcher Ron Herbel. Doc is one out away here from a no-hitter. You can really feel the electricity in the park right now, eh, folks? A dreary night here in Southern California for the hometown Padres, but everyone's eyes are on that man right there. And he winds up. Here it comes, and he takes it! A strike right down the middle! Oh my god, can you believe it? Can you believe it? Doc Ellis, a no-hitter! Wow! Now what a way to end a wild night here in game one of the doubleheader, Santa Maria! it up with the uh, old-timey oh, yeah. announcer voice. Oh, yeah, dude. That's uh, like uh, Hank Azaria and what's that show? Um, Brock Meyer. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> All right. Well, All right. that's it, folks. That's it. <laughs> well, now. <laughs> well, now I guess it's time to start the show. Get yourself a hot bag of roasted... Padres peanuts and a delicious Moxie yeah. Cola. I don't. What, that's probably too old. What are they drinking in the seventies? Get yourself a hot jug of pickle juice, just like we drink in the nineteen seventies. Yeah. A hot Padres pickle juice. <laughs> you know it's. <laughs> 
You know it's not Padres without your hot pickle punch. Yep. And a steaming hot bag of the Friar's Nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Dive head first into the Friar's steaming hot nut sack for a sack of hot steaming nuts. All right. Um, um, all right. Yeah. So, um, uh, so before this, I started watching Den of Thieves. Okay. Which uh, I I didn't get very far before I went mm-hmm. on my call, but um, dude, you weren't kidding. That movie fucking rocks. Yeah. No. I, I. Yeah. So I mean, I, for the listeners' sake, I will yeah. say I, I watched it because you you recommended it, and because uh, yeah. one of the guys on Chapo recommended it, and no, it yeah. really was. Uh, an awesome movie, Den of Thieves, starring Gerard Butler and Pablo Schreiber, who uh, I know is Liev Schreiber's half-brother, but yeah. I didn't realize until like halfway through the movie. I'm like, where do I know this guy from? Oh, my God, it's Nick Sabatka. Nico, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> so, um, And then I remember that he, uh, he's he been in my restaurant and, and stuff. Yeah. So. yeah uh, but, yeah, Nick Sabatka versus Gerard Butler, who is like puffed up to the max – I mean, and, even uh, freaking Nick Zabaka, like, he did not look like that in The Wire. No, he's jacked now. He's big. Yeah. He's a big, scary dude. He's he's 6'5 or 6'6". Six, six. Yeah, yeah, he's a tall dude. He's a legitimately huge dude. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, yeah, that's a great movie. And then I watched last night, I know I was, <laughs> I was texting you about this, but yeah. I'm going to recap for the listener. I watched one of the best movies I've ever seen in my entire life. And I do not say that lightly. I watched uh, Hanzo the Razor, Sword of Justice. Which yep. is a classic uh, Chanbara, like sword fighting '70s film, but it's it was like their attempt at like a uh, an exploitation film. So the whole soundtrack is like sort of chilled out funk, and I mean I don't want to give too much away, but like inside the first twenty minutes, you go from like you're like okay, the main character is sort of a sort of a samurai cop who is mad about police corruption, which, you know, cool. But then he's also, like, brutally abusive to his constituents, and then also to himself, and he spends, like, a good chunk of the movie, like... Most assuredly to his to most himself, assuredly it to, like. Yeah, uh, he spends, like, a good chunk of the movie, um, like, just subjecting himself to, like, brutal torture. And it's never super clear why he does it. Like, he says, like, oh, well, we torture criminals, and I think I should know, like what they go through but then it it becomes extremely like centered on his phallus and you realize like the whole premise of this movie is that here's this dude who's like a samurai cop who has a massive hammer and like trains it to be basically indestructible by like beating it with sticks and like dousing it in hot water and and he shoves him his manhood into like a really rough canvas sack full of rice like over and over and over again and they show all of this and, and then he uses it to sort of like torture and interrogate female witnesses by like pleasing them so much that like the act of coitus with his super unit like just they tell him everything it's crazy it's super problematic it's not yeah, and, and it also movie. did immediately go onto my letterbox watch list. So. Yeah, no, I yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's um, it's really it's like nothing you've ever seen. So if you if you're if yeah. any of that, uh, you're either completely turned off to the idea, or you're like, where the the hell can I see this movie? I think it's on yeah. HBO now. Uh, All right, nice. So you should go watch it. Uh, 
Um, yeah, which actually segues me. Um, before we get started, we should probably mention our, our legitimate paid sponsorship so that oh, yeah. we don't yeah, get very in trouble. Yeah, Very Real Sponsors, Inc. Yeah, we got it <laughs> from, from <laughs> realsponsors.co. Um, yeah, yeah LLC. We don't want to. We don't want to miss out on the the very real monetary incentives we have here to uh, yeah to run our show. Um, so today's episode is brought to you by Tiny Timmy's Treadlight Toddler Tripwire, the only improvised in-home booby trap trigger designed specifically with your little one in mind. Has this ever happened to you? It's your day off, and all you want to do is kick back, rip some whippets, and watch some fucking Family Guy. <laughs> Classic. Suddenly, you look up, you wipe the spittle from your lips, and you realize, oh, Christ, where is my 18-month-old son, Ken Tony? <laughs> Ken Tony? <laughs> Ken Tony, where are you? Ken Tony! He's gone. Wandered off and likely for good. Another son lost to roving packs of wild dogs. And the old ball and chain is never going to let you live this one down. So save yourself the headache with Tiny Timmy's Treadlight Toddler Tripwire. After some quick assembly and a minimally invasive chipping procedure for your child, you can enjoy the relaxation you crave without worrying that your child will run off and get themselves taken by the crooked legs lady. She's always watching, after all. When placed throughout the home, our hair-thin, high-tensile-strength trip wires can be triggered, rigged to trigger any number of our modular security devices purchased separately, including, but not limited to, the concertina cage, the upside-down dangler, and, of course, the pig choke. Once your child is safely incapacitated, the chip placed under their armpit will pick up on their increased heart rate and send an alert straight to our app on your phone, allowing you to locate and free your child at your leisure. Never miss an afternoon of women's collegiate gymnastics again, and keep that dang missus off your case with Tiny Timmy's Treadlight Toddler Tripwire. Call now while supplies last. And we gotta thank them, because honestly, they're bankrolling this whole fucking deal. Yeah, I've got like seven. Yeah, they're good. And the thing is, like, neither yeah. of us even have kids, but they're honestly, it's it's a lot of fun. You know, if you install them late at night, you're tired. Or, like, if you've had, like, a couple of drinks and you don't know, you don't remember doing it, the next yeah. morning, like, it makes waking up and getting ready for work a lot more interesting. Yeah, or if you just want to fuck with your roommates. Yeah, or, like... Boom, right like, outside their door. Is your dad, like, a, a hideously scarred Vietnam veteran? Like, what better way to bring back memories of his... <laughs> <laughs> His time, his time <laughs> over there, than to set your house up and... and, and his time in scenic Vietnam. His t- <laughs> yeah. oh. All right, well, anyway, um, if you couldn't tell from the, uh, the intro to this podcast or the title or the line notes, uh, this one is about uh, Doc Ellis, uh, the former starting pitcher of the Pittsburgh Pirates and his infamous... Uh, uh, no hitter that he threw while tripping absolute nuts on LSD. Um, and I first came across this story. It was a long time ago, and uh, we'll put it in the uh, the show notes. Um, but it was based on this like short little five minute mini documentary narrated by him, taken from like an NPR interview that he did, which is really really cool. Um, so we'll put that in the line notes so you can watch it. But that's the first time I heard about this, and it's sort of one of those stories that I've always loved. Uh, throughout my uh, baseball watching life. Um, but, you know, it was funny. I I'd initially intended this episode to really focus on the game a lot more. But as 
I did research and learned more about actually Doc Ellis the man and not just the guy who throw the acid no-hitter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I found him a lot more compelling and really, really a cool character. But um, we're also un- totally unintentionally, um, but we will be releasing this on Thursday, which just so happens to be, or would have been his 76th birthday. So happy birthday, Doc. Uh, <laughs> when did he pass away? It wasn't that long ago. Yeah, he was young. He was like 63. He passed away, um, I think it was like 2007. Oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah, he was a young guy. Um, you know, uh, spending his teenage and adult years doing lots of drugs really, really took a toll on him. But, um... Yeah. That'll happen. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so anyway, Doc Phillip, uh, or, uh, Doc Phillip Ellis Jr., as he was born, or is his, as he is was his known... first name Doc? Yeah, that's his real first name. So his given name is Doc, D-O-C-K. Yep. Cool. Yeah, so he was born March 11th, 1945 in Los Angeles, California as Doc Philip Ellis Jr. Um, And he was known as a kid as Peanut, and then simply when he got older as The Nut. Mm. (laughs) Um, No other nut can compare. Yeah, yeah, those are the the two standard nuts. (laughs) Except for the Friars Hot Nuts. Yeah, the Friars Nuts, yeah. Yeah, We love Um, to dive deep into a sack of the Friars Hot Nuts. Yeah, which actually, uh, just as a quick aside, at King Richard's Fair, I don't know if they do this anymore, but they used to sell, you could get ba- uh, hot bags of the King's Nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I, was always, I was always after those smoked turkey legs, but... If yeah, ever, the turkey if, legs and the big-ass bucket of pickles. I wonder, I wonder like, because that's a super specific group of people that do, like, the medieval reenactments. Oh, yeah, Ren Fairs? Yeah, and I wonder... Like, this must be the most depressing time imaginable for them. Because, yeah. like, you spend your whole year just gearing up for, like, autumn when you can, like, dress Selling the way... these terribly, like, carved wooden swords and shields for, like, 300 bucks to screaming kids. Yeah, but also, like, <laughs> dressing up in armor and, like, jousting and... Oh, I yeah, mean, that's yeah, the yeah. way they want to they live. And yeah. in their normal lives, they're, you know, working shitty jobs like the rest of us. And they have to, like, yeah. hide their true selves, which are, like... I mean... I, I have a neighbor who, uh, he does that every year, too, him and his wife. Really? He's a uh, police officer, yeah. Damn. So what does he yeah. play as a, as a medieval guy, like a like an old jailer? I'm not sure. Uh, my roommate knows more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he talks to him more often. But, but anyway, um, so Doc's father, who is also obviously named Doc, uh, Doc he, he was known as Big Doc, and he worked in a post office and then as a longshoreman. Uh, and he later went to school for shoe repair. And uh, Doc's mother, Naomi, uh, helped his father open the shoe repair shop and a dry cleaner business. Now, Doc went to high school in Gardena, California, which was predominantly white. And uh, But he went there in hopes of finding a better education, but was routinely subjected to racial prejudice. Again, this would have been during the early 60s. So so right, uh, right before and then during the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, he became uh, he began playing baseball to avoid a suspension when he got caught smoking weed and drinking. Usually, you lose those privileges, but um, he did that to avoid the suspension. Um, but he was subjected to further racial prejudice on the team, uh, and he also played basketball. Um, now, Doc's father died when Doc was only eighteen, and at that point, he decided to focus on baseball. Doc at this point was six foot three and nearly two hundred pounds as like yeah as uh, eighteen years old as a high schooler. I was bigger than and, that. Uh, I was not. 
Well, still you're aren't. still not. But <laughs> yeah, still not. I yeah, was. it's not that weird. <laughs> yeah, but uh, <laughs> he became a pitcher due to his arm strength, um, and he once uh, threw the ball from the outfield fence over the backstop behind home plate. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> now Ellis attended uh, Los Angeles Harbor College in Wilmington, California, but uh, most of his time uh, playing baseball was spent in Watts. Uh, Los Angeles for former Negro Leagues pitcher Chet Brewer. Uh, Ellis was scouted by Brewer for the Pirates, and he tutored several future uh, major leaguers. While he fielded several offers, Ellis always wanted to sign with Pittsburgh, and he finally got his chance in 1964, one year before the first MLB draft, but his signing bonus was reduced after he was caught stealing a car. Fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, while in the minors for the Pirates, he felt uh, pressure to perform and turned towards drugs and alcohol. That was really when it started. And now this is from uh, his straight from his Saber bio, which Saber is uh, the Society for American Baseball Research. And for, you know, basically like every player, they usually have these huge, huge articles about their whole playing career, which is where I got a lot of a lot of this. Um, so right from Saber, uh, homesick and lonely, he went to a bar with teammates and ordered a beer, hoping to pass as 21. When the waitress informed him that the drinking age in New York was 19, he said, OK, take the beer back and bring me some vodka stingers. What's a stinger? I know that's what I, I thought. Know. I was hoping you could tell me since nobody's ordering those now. I mean, maybe that's like some <laughs> regional slang for like fruity shots or something. Uh, I don't know. But I, I'm gonna, I just I'm gonna assume, look it yeah. up. Yeah, I just assumed out. they were shots. Vodka. Um, what's a what is a vodka stinger? Yeah. Vodka stinger. It's a. Okay, all right. So vodka, it's equal parts okay. vodka and creme de menthe. So that's fucking nasty. <laughs> There's a Damn reason you good. haven't heard of that. So, while excelling on the field, Ellis became uh, addicted to stimulants, including Benzedrine, uh, which are known as Bennies, and Dexamil, uh, which are known as Greenies. Fuck yeah. Uh, now, both of these drugs were super prevalent in baseball, in the uh, especially like in the sixties and the seventies, basically a lot of people were taking them. And and as uh, Doc himself said, I was into the speed because of the expectations to hurry up and get to the big leagues. Uh, he recounted, "I had a no miss tag on me. It's impossible for this kid not to get to the big leagues. That's a lot of stress." Um, so Ellis attempted to hold out in nineteen sixty eight for more money, but he eventually accepted his contract and made its Major League debut against the Los Angeles Dodgers as a reliever on June 18th in Pittsburgh. He made his first start on July 31st at Cincinnati and finished the year as a starting pitcher. He, he would then pitch all of 1969 as a starting pitcher with the Pirates. Wow. Uh, so in 1970, uh, it began as another normal year for Ellis in the starting rotation. Uh, and then on Wednesday, June 10th, 1970, the Pirates lost a day game in San Francisco and flew to San Diego for a four-game set. Now, uh, Thursday was an off day, and Ellis had received permission to drive home to Los Angeles on Thursday, scheduled off day, and return on Friday to pitch the first game of a doubleheader. I'm not sure how it was in the 70s, yeah. but nowadays, usually, like, you know, the, the game will end. Yeah. Say, like, the game ended on Wednesday night. They would probably fly right then. Right. So, he probably got up, like, real early Thursday. Yeah. Which, that's about to make more sense why, why I explained that. Okay. Um... But, uh, so, he probably got up real early, and then drove drove to, to L.A., you know, whatever, that right. is two hours away, I don't know. 
Yeah, um, I know LA and San Diego are not super close. Yeah. Yeah, I they, think they it's are. Probably, they are super close. Yeah, so I, I think it's about like an hour. Yeah, uh, maybe a little bit more. Especially there's probably crazy traffic. Yeah, I don't even know. I've never driven to California, but everything I hear about like LA traffic. Makes oh yeah, it makes my skin crawl. Yeah, some uh, unbelievably somehow worse than Boston. Yeah, well, I mean Boston's tiny, so as as lame as our streets are, and as like yeah. stupid as the drivers are, there's only so much you can get with like little two lane, three lane highways and. Rinky-dink, yeah. little curvy, crappy roads. I think they've got like six, seven, eight-lane highways out there, and they're just like, you know, it's Hollywood and yeah. shit. People are flocking out there. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, it was the off day, and he received permission. So uh, he was going to drive home to Los Angeles on Thursday, hang out, and then pitch Friday night, the first game of a doubleheader. Gotcha. <laughs> and now let's get to the trip. So Doc Ellis took LSD at the airport in San Diego, and he said he timed it so he knew that once he got to his friend's place in L.A., that's when he'd be taken off. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that's uh, so fucking crazy. He 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 basically like had to race the acid. He had to beat it. Yeah, because you don't want to be like on the highway doing eighty miles an hour when acid kicks Uh, in. Yeah, I mean, not that I've done it, but I've (laughs) I've known people that have done it. You know, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, uh, so he just uh, he took it at the airport in San Diego, got in the car, and drove to his friend's girlfriend's place in L.A. Uh, when she opened the door, she asked, "What's wrong with you?" And he just responded, "I'm as high as a Georgia pine." That's yeah. <laughs> yep. I've never uh-huh. heard that saying, but I I know immediately what yeah. it means. Yep. Um. So the friends drank booze and smoked weed. Uh. All day long until Ellis fell asleep. He woke up Friday morning thinking it was still Thursday and proceeded to take more acid. Um, His friend entered the room with a newspaper open to the sports section and told Ellis that not only was today actually Friday, but that Doc was scheduled to pitch in four hours down in San Diego. Jeez. After he just ate more acid. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yes, he, he like, woke up at, like, noon or something like that, and then was just like, all right, time for some more acid. Yeah. Thinking it was still Thursday. I don't know. I guess he thought it was, like, late Thursday evening, but still sunny out. I he was know. on acid. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yep. Your, your but, whole uh, sense of everything gets screwed up. He had no idea what time it was. Yeah. Because so, uh, here's the thing. I mean, it lasts a really long time. If he took acid the night before and fell asleep, he woke up still tripping. Yeah. Like, it's not like, and frankly, the fact that yeah, he fell so asleep was, at all is... Yeah, he thought he had just taken, like, a little nap. So he must have, like, fallen asleep while it's still light out. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, But, um, so he thought it was just a little nap. He had just slept, like, fucking 12 hours or something, I'm guessing. Maybe more than that. But, um, uh, so Ellis immediately thought to himself, what happened to yesterday? So it was now 2 p.m., and Ellis raced to the airport to get a 3.30 p.m. flight to San Diego... He arrived an hour later, and he got to the ballpark in time for first pitch at 6.05. Uh, he says he knew a woman that sold Benny's at the park, just, like, okay. in the stands. So speed. So he's going to, like, try to, like... Yeah, the Benzedrine, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he does... Uh, he talks about it as, like, this, like, little blonde woman who sat in the front row. So he walks over to her, grabs a few, goes to the clubhouse, eats them. Um... So he says that there was misty rain the entire game, and both his teammates and the opponents could tell he was high on something, but they didn't know what he was high on. Right. And no one's going to, like, rat him out. 
Yeah, they were just like, what the fuck? Uh, so, Doc says that he, could, uh, he couldn't really see the hitters, and he could only tell if they were batting right-handed or left-handed. Uh, and then uh, his buddy on the team, second baseman Dave Cash, apparently every time they got to the dugout, he would continuously tell Doc Ellis that he had a no-no, which is a no-hitter going. Yeah. But, like, Doc would have to, like, look up to check to see if there were actually so no hits. To clarify, so he's so blasted. He can yeah. barely see the people at bat. And he's getting, you know, innings into this game, and he's throwing almost a perfect game. I mean, he's, it's not a perfect game. Right, it's he's a no-hitter. But yeah, he's saying, walking general, a ton of people. Yeah, yeah it's, it's right. He's walking yeah. a ton of people. But yeah. no one's getting... Nobody's getting a hit off of him. Yeah. He's just, like, on a fucking different planet yeah. doing this. Um, he says that he can only really remember bits and pieces of the game which he recalled, uh, like, 14 years later, says, I was psyched. I had a feeling of euphoria. I was zeroed in on the catcher's glove, but I didn't hit the glove too much. I remember hitting a couple of batters, and the bases were loaded two or three times. (laughs) The ball was small sometimes. The ball was large sometimes. Sometimes I saw the catcher. Sometimes I didn't. (laughs) He says, sometimes I tried to stare the hitter down and throw while I was looking at him. I chewed my gum until it turned to powder. They say I had about three to four fielding chances. I remember diving out of the way of a ball I thought was a line drive. I jumped, but the ball wasn't hit hard and never reached me. (laughs) (laughs) Diving off the mound. (laughs) Uh, He said that sometimes he would try to catch the ball with both hands, thinking it was enormous. (laughs) Like when it was tossed to him. And like other times, he said it seemed like tiny in his mitt. Like you would look at it and just like a little... Just like a tiny, itty bitty little yeah, like a golf ball or something. Oh man! <laughs> um, and then at one point, he made a uh, made a good penny by catching the ball while covering first base and like all in one motion, catching it and tagging the base. And he just goes, "Ooh, I just made the touchdown." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, uh, he paid no attention to the score. Uh, he just kept hitting people, walking people, throwing the ball into the dirt. Um, and during oh, the so game, he's like he's like throwing like ass. Uh, yeah, he walked eight guys. Yeah, uh, he said he thought he hit like multiple, but it turns out he only hit one. Oh, there you go. So that was pretty good. Um, <laughs> but um, he's during the game. Uh, Willie Stargell hit two solo home runs, and second baseman Bill Mazeroski, uh, famously, I think it's still the only walk off home run in Game Seven of, of World Series ever. Wow, which he did against the Yankees. Um, but, uh, he made a great defensive play at one point to save a base hit if he had no, no hitter. Um, but yeah, so he would go on to walk eight batters. He hit one. He struck out six, including the last out, which sealed the only no hitter of Doc Ellis's career. And it was the first of the 1970 season. In case anybody's not aware, no hitters are like fairly common. Uh, usually have a few every year. Um, uh, Nolan Ryan has seven personally, mm-hmm. but, um, so they're not, like, the craziest, like, game. It's, like, perfect games, there's only, like, 20-something. But, sure. Uh, which is when you don't walk. Nobody reaches base whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and then Ellis would go on to say, uh, uh, you know, he was very open about it, and he said that um, he had pitched every single game of his career under the influence of some substance. Wow. Whether it was alcohol, weed, bennies, or greenies, but the acid game, uh, in particular, he kept close to his chest for years. Um until he disclosed it during the draft of a 1976 biography he collaborated on with a friend, uh, before deciding to scrap that story in order to not upset George Steinbrenner. 
after he had just signed with the Yankees. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to upset George. Yeah, yeah, that's, he's a, that's very, a strict uh, organization. Yeah. <laughs> uh, although finally, in the 1984 interview with the Pittsburgh Press, Ellis told the story of his being on LSD during his no hitter. Um, now, shortly before Doc Ellis passed of cirrhosis in 2008. Uh, he did an interview with NPR, uh, which was his final about the acid no-hitter, and the audio itself was used to create an award-winning short film by James Baldwin. And uh, again, we'll we'll link that in the show notes. Not James Baldwin, James Baldwin. James Baldwin? Not like James uh, Baldwin. No, because he was dead in... I'm sorry. So there's a famous writer, James Baldwin, but he wasn't yeah, this alive was, in 2008. This is... This is a short film okay. by a guy named James Baldwin. So a, a different guy named James Baldwin. Okay. Sorry. For a second, I was like, wait, James Baldwin? But then I, I was, because I was seeing the 1984 interview, and then I saw James Baldwin. I was like, James Baldwin? Because he's one of my yeah. favorite writers. But no, this isn't James Baldwin, James Baldwin. Yeah. This looks like a totally different one, yeah. Different James Baldwin. There's a lot of James Baldwins. Yeah, the, 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 the James is Baldwin. Yeah, so that's his uh, that's his acid no hitter. Yeah, which is insane. I mean, so I knew like the gist of that. I remember you probably yeah. told me about it, but but um, maybe yeah, it's pretty famous. Yeah, I think it's a pretty famous like baseball anecdote at this point, and it's like it's just nuts. I mean, I can't imagine. <laughs> I, I, it just seems crazy to me that that he could do it. I don't know. Everything I've ever heard about it, it sounds crazy. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, I I especially like the part where. Uh, he thinks a line drive is flying towards him. Right, and, and he's, he's like, like diving, he's like diving around, <laughs> he's like diving as if he's about to get drilled by a ball, and everyone's looking at him like, "What the like? What the fuck is going what on? What is this guy doing? Yeah, what the fuck is going on with Doc? Yeah. Um, and so for a long time, that was the story. You know, I thought yeah. it was funny. This funny story of this guy who used to be just doing like all kinds of drugs went out there and threw a no hitter while on acid. However, uh. As I learned from doing my research over time, Ellis would really come to resent the game as his defining memory. And like I said, even right before he died, he did, you know, this very, like, upbeat. It's hysterical, you should watch the interview, he's a riot. But, like, where he's still joking around about it, but it was something that he was, he really was not happy that it was the defining memory. That was the thing that everybody right. thought about Doc Ellis. Right, you know, because you end up feeling kind of like a clown. Like, the thing that well, people remember about you is this, like, silly, crazy story and not... Well, especially with who he became afterwards, right. too. And so, when he first signed his contract with the Pirates after high school, uh, it was left in, it was less than two decades after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. And I think that's, like, you know, really yeah. crazy to think about, like, like less than uh, 20 years before he was signed. Right. You know, black players weren't even allowed to play in uh, Major League Baseball. Right, yeah. And it wasn't fully integrated. And, uh, you know, Ellis, throughout his career and afterwards, he'd be very outspoken about social justice and institutional racism in baseball. And he became a vocal supporter of not only equality for players of color, but the creation of free agency. Mm -hmm. So, again, when he started, the free agency wasn't a thing. Yeah. And even he signed his first contract one year before the first MLB draft. You know, before wow. that, there was, like, a whole bunch of, like, bullshit going on with signing players. Um that's the reason that the Yankees were so good back in the 40s, 50s, and then uh, I think like very early 60s is because they could just sign everybody that they wanted to, all the amateurs, and then right. started instituting some different rules. Um, but yeah, the, you know that was even before the draft. But there were a lot of things that he was really proud of, like such as in 1971, 
he was part of the Pirates team that um, the team that fielded the first All Black lineup in MLB history. Wow! And that same year, he started the All Star game for the NL, and he lo- helped lead the Pirates to a World Series victory over the vaunted Orioles at the time, who were just destroying everybody. That was under manager Earl Weaver. Uh, he also helped lead the Yankees to a pennant in 1976 while winning Comeback Player of the Year award. So he was no um, slouch. Yeah, I mean, he was a decent player, yeah. you know. But he, he had some good years. Yeah. And, yeah, you know. Uh, now, in 1972, uh, there was an incident where Doc Ellis, Willie Stargell, and their teammate Rennie Stinnett all arrived at the Cincinnati Red Stadium for opening day and got in, into an altercation with a guard who asked them for identification. Ellis flashed his World Series ring, and the guard, David Hatter, took it as a threat, and he sprayed Doc Ellis with mace while arresting him and charging him with disorderly conduct. Ellis would go on uh, to threaten to sue the Reds, and the Reds would drop all charges while both wrote apologies to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, not really sure what Ellis did wrong, but... Uh, uh, the Pirates would admit after the fact that they never issued ID cards to their players, so there was really no other way for Ellis to even prove to the guard that he right. the team. Yeah, but, uh, so he, like, shows him his World Series ring, and the guard, like, doesn't even take the time to, like, put two and two together and be like, oh, okay, this guy is a professional champion yeah. baseball he's player. Like, no, he's shaking his he's fist He's got some at me. big old ring, and he's, like, showing me he's gonna punch me. Yeah. Just because, you know... What else would a, a black guy trying to enter a baseball stadium in nice clothes with a bunch of baseball gear, what else would he be doing? Yeah. And, you know, this is also at the time, uh, I believe, this is when um, Marge Schott was the owner of the Reds, or at least, you know, let's see. Oh, no, uh, I guess that was before. That was before. Or Marge Schott was a... Uh, inveterate Nazi sympathizer who owned the Reds for a long time. Oh, awesome. That was actually before. Yeah, very cool. Um, <clears throat> I'm rocks, dude. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so... There's only two uh, loves in my life. That's professional baseball and national socialism. Yeah, and Nazi memorabilia, which I keep displayed predominantly right there in my house. You can just see it right away. Nazi baseball memorabilia. It's a very specific collection. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so Doc Ellis was also really close friends with uh, Roberto Clemente, um, who is the infamous Puerto Rican, or not infamous, the famous Puerto Rican uh, baseball player for the Pirates, mm-hmm. who died uh, on a plane crash right after the game where he got his 3,000th hit. Oh, wow. And he was like a huge humani- uh, humanitarian and, and beloved around around the league. Um, but when Ellis first came up, he uh, roomed with Roberto Clemente, who kind of like showed him the ropes. Yeah. And um, Ellis was so despondent at Roberto's tragic uh, 1972 death, and in his shock and trauma, just rampaged through his house, taking out his like anger and grief on his wife Paula, who would divorce him soon after. Um, Did not he exactly. Sh- I I have no idea. Oh, well, that's not good. I am. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty clear at this point that he has, like, some serious problems. Yeah, yeah. You know? He's a troubled um, man. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, throughout the following years, he would suffer from arm problems and struggles the rest of his career, uh, while going through multiple teams. He was finally released at the end of his career and re-signed with the Pirates, which he was ecstatic about, because, mm-hmm. again, you, you know, remember, he had only ever wanted to be with the Pirates. Um, and then, eventually, at the end of his career, he just couldn't hang it anymore, and um, the Pirates released him. And he was married to another woman at the time. And he went into such another like despondent rage at being 
released that he freaked out again. Um, he was so devastated about it that his wife, uh, Austin, she left him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there's there's definitely some things unsaid here. Like, there's definitely some space yeah. between like he was so devastated and uns and, and upset. Yeah, and then his wife left him. So like, yeah, that that's the most I could find. But yeah, yeah. You know, Obviously, yeah, he was. I, I have some ideas about what's going on in the, yeah. in the in between there. That's too bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, fucked up. I, we don't. I don't yeah. know that that's what happened, but that sounds like yeah. it. Sounds it, like there's what there's enough there to go off of that. Yeah. It wasn't a good yeah. situation. No. Um, and finally, in 1980, he realized that he had a problem, and um, uh, uh he asked former major leaguer Don Newcomb. Uh, to help him, because this was a man that worked with other addicts, which he knew. Uh, and after he he talked with Don and he decided to come up with a plan, uh, he asked his sister to come meet him at the uh, the airport and bring a bottle of, of vodka, and he told her that it would be his very last. Uh, I assume after that he drank it. Um, and then he checked himself into rehab, he got clean, and then he spent uh, most of the rest of his life trying to help other addicts get clean. Uh, and really, really be, <laughs> made uh, an enormous name for himself around the game mm-hmm. uh, and around the area of Pittsburgh and L.A. Uh, doing this. Uh, this was apparently something that he had begun while a player uh, when he when he visited inmates in uh, the local Pittsburgh area prisons. So he used to go around then, um, visiting them, talking to them, trying to help, you know, yeah. trying to help them get through their problems. And... Uh, Doc Ellis uh, once said, you know, continuous recovery, I'll be recovering until I die. And, uh, you know, he had always said that he took drugs and alcohol both as he was scared to win and scared to lose. That's really interesting. Because, I mean, I think, I don't know, but I I can imagine that 1980 is probably relatively early for someone to be thinking of the idea of being, you know, a a, a forever recovering addict. You know what I mean? I think that that's kind of a, a, a... a relatively recent notion in terms of the way that we view substance abuse, the idea that a person can be recovering indefinitely. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That you are always an addict, even once you're clean. Sure. And you're, you're always, yeah. you're always going to have specific tendencies to grapple with and specific memories to deal with things like that. That's really yeah. interesting. I mean, it sounds like so far there's like a really, a really kind of interesting mix of like, real humanitarian tendencies and a real willingness to admit to his flaws, but then also, like, some really, you know, legitimate behavioral issues that... Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, for a person to act a certain way and then to devote themselves to bettering themselves, it's hard to... It's hard to knock that, right? Um, So it's impressive, at least, that... Well, so far, here we are in, whatever, 1980... Yep. I'm glad that he's... Let's see what happens to Doc. I, I, yeah. I, I want to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, he realized once it was... Everything was done and he had, like, lost his career. It was over. Yeah. I mean, he was older at the time yeah. anyway and suffering from, like... Con- like, if you, you know, there, there was stuff, like, at the time in baseball where, like, they clearly didn't realize, like, the damage that was going on in pitchers' arms. Sure. Like, you know, the infamous story of, like, Sandy Koufax waking up after a game, this is towards the end of his career... And his entire arm was black and blue. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, he was clearly, like, pitching through, like, torn, like, ligament in his elbow. Yeah. And, and you know, as I'm reading this through Doc Ellis, there's constant stories of all of a sudden he's just down for two to three months 
with like excruciating like elbow pain yeah. and stuff like that and then we're just pitching through it it's like a dude probably tore his elbow yeah back in the early 70s and then just like kept and just baseballs for like eight years pitched on like a just a fucked up arm right you know what i mean so like oh, God, he was like an, yeah i know it's fucking nuts like, i mean we're, we're still shit. learning every every year you know professional athletes are 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 essentially killing themselves for our entertainment and yeah that death might be delayed but um you know maybe not so much in baseball but certainly guys in baseball have permanent joint damage and back damage yeah. and skeletal injuries and then you get into like the really high contact sports and these guys have a lower life expectancy yeah. you know i and mean dude like i have personally watched multiple videos of multiple pitchers break their arms so violently and loudly that you can hear it from the camera. Yeah, you love your, like break, your break videos. Oh, no, I, I can't do those anymore, especially you're, you're, All you're doing is... I can't do compounds. No. You hear that crack? No. Oh. No, no, I know. Yeah, but well, yeah, since, you, like since guys you fucked like, up your leg, you're, yeah, you're a little traumatized. I can't do that. Yeah, but... That's like me like, and, and when I see videos of guys with uh, just, like, really, really nice... Like, watching that movie last night when I saw Hanzo the Razor, and I saw just, like, how, like, impressive he was, that's triggering to me, because, like... Like his hairline, and you're like, damn. Well, the hairline... hair that thick. <laughs> Fuck you. No, I was actually trying to gas myself up about his, his member, and how when I see a man with a nice peen, it just makes me feel so self-conscious about how great my own is. But no, yeah, the hairline thing is actually more like it. Yeah, he had that... They're like, damn, his ton tonsure. You can't or whatever. see any scalp. What the fuck? Oh man, and I still got a little peach fuzz up here. Look at how smooth his head is. <laughs> Unbelievable. I can't wait. No, um, but anyway, uh, so Ellis would go on to work with the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections to uh, to help rehabilitate black prisoners, and he helped start the Black Athletes Foundation for sickle cell research, and served as the coordinator of an anti drug program in L.A. Uh, his resentment for his most famous feat came because it, quote, robbed him of his greatest professional memory. Right. All the work he did afterwards, you know, yeah. working with uh, working with uh, prisoners, working with addicts, for former players, stuff like that, everybody who was, like, struggling. One former prisoner even went on to say, uh, if I had never met Doc, I would probably be dead or doing life. There's no doubt about that in my mind whatsoever. That dude changed my life. He changed my world. And then there was um, uh, Lewis Moore, the uh, the associate professor of history at Grand Valley State University. Uh, he authored the book uh, "We Will Win the Day," which was about black activist athletes in the civil rights era. And uh, he said about Doc, "I think we lose something important when we just concentrate on that game." He had addiction problems, and he knew it, and he used his retirement to address those and help others. Moreover, we don't allow for him to be a powerful redemption story. An athlete who had flaws, but he used his missteps to help others. Instead, he's the eccentric black pitcher, not the outspoken guy who went into the community. He helped his teammate Willie Stargell get the word out for sickle cell as part of the Black Athlete Foundation. He even talked to the Senate about this, and he helped kids in need, and of course he spoke his mind. Today, we relabel those athletes as activist athletes, but in the 70s, they were problematic loudmouths. Right. Yeah, I mean... And that, that, like, circles back to what you were talking about, about how, I mean, really, when he started, it's 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 only, what, 18 years since black yeah. players were even allowed in the MLB? So yeah. it's not like they went from, and people in this country, and I think that baseball is sort of a microcosm of this, but people have this tendency to think that, like, once a specific rule or a specific law changes, right, like, 
okay, the MLB is integrated now. We can wipe our hands and 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 oh. everything's fixed and we're we're fine. And it's like, nah, man, you're just inviting a bunch of guys into a league that still hates them. Yep. Right. That still undervalues them and is still willing to let teammates them use that still don't accept them. Some yeah. of them. Yeah. yeah. And so maybe they can make a couple more bucks now, but again, yeah, certainly, man- certainly managers and owners that didn't accept them. No, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and I mean, you, yeah. you still see this now. We've talked about this before, like the problem with racism in certain ballparks, you know, our, our own is, is often yeah, Fenway, cited. Yeah. Fenway is often cited. Like it's 2021 and you still, I mean, well, not, maybe not this season because I don't think there's anybody, they probably love it. They finally come to Fenway. There's no one in the stands, nobody to yell slurs at them. But yeah, I mean, these people are still dealing with this shit. So Doc was yeah. a pioneer, and he was playing in a time where it was like really tough to be a young, talented black guy in a world that has no time for young, talented black men. Yeah, you know, no wonder he had issues. No wonder he was he had pain he had to deal with. He had things he was upset about. Yeah. It's not to exonerate his faults, but anyway, it's yeah, it is impressive, and yeah. In, um, in 1971, he had actually received one of his most prized possessions, which was a handwritten letter from Jackie Robinson, uh, in which Jackie wrote, Try to get more players to understand your view, and you will find great support. You have made a real contribution. Oh, and this is when he's speaking out for things like you know, free agency and stuff like right. that. It's not, it's not right that the, the owners essentially just get to control you. Yeah. Once they get you. <laughs> you know, like, imagine, like, imagine fucking any other job. Like, would you take it if, like, once you graduated fucking college, some fucking, like, piece of shit place just drafted you to work there and you had to, like, go live in, I don't know, not to insult where anybody lives, but, I don't know, fucking, like, uh, like North Dakota or something like right. that. And it was like, well, I can either go there or not work in my job. Right. Like, it's fucking insane. Like, that, that entire system, even now with the draft, but even then, when you just sign the contract, it's like, okay, now anything that happens to you, they can just trade you whenever. Okay, we can just send you here. Um, but you either have to take what we're going to pay you, or you can just not play. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it's just, I mean, like, insane that, like, we accepted those conditions and labor for, for athletes, but we've never for ourselves. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, it's easy to, to overlook the fact that these are essentially, like, in, in a certain abstraction, they are manual laborers, and they're using their bodies up for our entertainment. I now, mean, granted, they, 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 are, they, their relationship to production is they're the ones producing right. the good that's being sold. Yeah, they're, they're the entire commodity. And around yeah. without them, there is no greater industry to be built. Now, granted, I think people will make the argument like they're super well compensated, but I think they're... Well, they weren't that. Right, exactly. Like, <laughs> like They were the, making the, dick. Right. The baseball salaries that we know of today, which are, you know, even for middling players, like somebody... So let's say somebody like Doc Ellis would still be making millions of dollars to be starting for a major league team, you know? Yeah. And they they weren't getting paid like that back then. Yeah. And you know what? And... uh just to really hammer that point home, because you'd always have this kind of story in America. Uh, when he was diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver uh, in 2007, here's how not well compensated he was during his career. Uh, he had hoped for a liver transplant. However, he had no health insurance. Wow. And his family relied heavily on friends from his baseball career to help pay his bills. Again, this dude, he wasn't using after his career. He didn't sure. use up his money. Yeah. Using. He didn't fucking have health insurance, of course. Yeah. 
Right. Was um, there any sort of pension from the league at that point? At the time. Now, now uh, you get, I forget how, it's how many days, and then you get automatic health insurance for life. Yeah. Now, because the you know Players Association negotiated for that. Right. Um, uh, I think it's something like, I don't know, maybe 30 days, 40 days, something like that, and then you yeah. get health insurance for life. If you spend that on a major league roster, mm-hmm. uh, I could be wrong. It, it's a short period of time. Yeah. But, um, however, it soon uh, came out that he had heart damage, which precluded him from any transplant. And he died on December 19th, 2008, at the age of 63. Wow. But yeah, no health insurance. Sorry, man, we'll never transplant. Yeah. And he just died. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so uh, I'll read the final quote from his Sabre article. Possibly the most underrated, unpopular, and misunderstood player ever. Doc Ellis redefined success as something other than putting up impressive numbers in the major leagues. He pioneered a path across racial and cultural divides and found a way not only to live beyond his fears, but also to walk alongside others who struggled as he did. And uh, and as Lewis Moore said, I think we lose something important when we just concentrate on that game. He had addiction problems and he knew it, and he used his retirement to address those and help others. Yeah. Yeah, and... and... Wow. <laughs> I, so, that that has made me rethink even going into today because really, all I knew about Doc Ellis was he's the the quirky black pitcher who pitched that game on acid. Yeah, you know, which is so that is a legendary story, right? And it's yeah, it's funny, you know, one of the most legendary stories in Major League history. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's and rightfully so, right? But you never hear. I never knew any. I mean, I'm not nearly as big of a baseball fan as you are, but you never hear him talked about as anything other than that. Yeah. That's all I knew about him. Not and, the guy fighting to get people get people sober, the guy who fought right. himself to get sober, all that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you can't undervalue that. I mean that's a that's a particularly um you you are you are the toughest enemy you could ever face in a situation like that. So Yeah. Um and it's a real shame that in 2008, you know, this guy who made a real contribution in so many areas was essentially just left out to die. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, you know, uh, growing up in the area that I've grown up in, I've known a lot of people who have struggled like that. I've had friends do it. Uh, I've had family do it. I've seen people take, you know, pay the highest price you can. I've seen them you know, changed their lives before then, and, uh, you know, like I said, you know, when I, when I got into it, I was writing the story about, or trying to do the podcast about the guy with the, the funny acid game, and, and right. what it really turned out was that, you know, that shouldn't be all he's known for, because, sure. you know, he fought that struggle, yeah, and he helped others, so, yeah, I think that's a much more important thing to, to take from this. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it, this was not uh, the zany... Uh, laugh fest that I was expecting, but I think that it's... It was for a little bit. It was for a little bit. I think it's a better <laughs> episode for it, though. Um, yeah. And I'm glad now that I know going forward, and the next time I hear somebody talking about Doc Ellis, not that it happens all the time, Yeah. but I'll be sure to say, hey, and did you also know that he was a pretty decent guy? Yeah, who, like, fought for a lot of really important things for, for uh, you know, a long time after his playing career ended. Yeah. He had yeah. one really funny night, and then like thirty-five really good years. Yeah, 
But that night was funny, though. Yeah, but that fucking rule, though. Yeah, yeah, that does rule. Yeah. Wow, well, good job. I mean, thanks. I, 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 I didn't know most of that. Yeah, me neither. Well, now you do. Now I do. And now you do, too. Now I do, too. All right. All right, dude. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's that, I think, for today. Um, unless you've got anything you want to add. No, that's about it. Cool. Well, that, that, folks, is the Doc Ellis episode. Yep. And uh, just remember. The, the Doc you, is in. <laughs> the Doc is in. If you or anyone you know struggles with pitching on acid. <laughs> yeah. Or children running through the house while yeah, they're not paying so, attention. Another another thing that did come to my mind is that they would have benefited from Tiny Timmy's uh, tread light toddler. I'm trying to remember what it is because I don't have it in front of me. Tiny Timmy's tread light toddler tripwire. Tripwire. You can keep you can keep yourself. I don't even know. I don't know how it would have helped him because now I'm thinking about it. He wakes up and he's got to go, and then he trips the tripwire. Next thing you know, he's got bamboo spikes through him. Yeah, and then he's yeah, and then he's heard army from more than usual, you know. Yeah, I mean that'll now yeah that no Tommy Johns is gonna help you bounce back from that. No. All right, well I think that's a wrap, folks. All right. Yeah, that was a great episode, and uh, it's like I always say, when it comes, to throw your hardest, throw your fastest, as long but as I'll... you. But go. But always throw. <laughs> But always make sure you throw. That's yeah. right. It doesn't matter if the it doesn't matter if the pitch goes long or the pitch goes short. What matters is that the pitch goes. Goes. <laughs> Alright, thanks guys. Alright. Have a good night. Uh, as always, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Left on Red Pod. Um, yeah, and we're 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 looking for suggestions, we're looking for feedback. Um, yeah, hope- if there's something you would like to hear us joke around about, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, we're not gonna do it. Like you'll probably we'll probably like, make fu- we'll make fun of you your, on air though. Your idea is probably pretty bad, but yeah. like if you want us to do something about like someone from like your home country or state or yeah. province. Hey, can or- you guys do a do an episode about my friend Stinky Bill from high school? Yeah, man, we could tell the story of that one time when Stinky Bill pitched that game on acid. Ah, oh, fuck. Um, <laughs> also, it's come to my attention and realization that, that we've done a lot of American history episodes, and that's yeah. not intentional, because we both got long lists of non-American... So you'll probably start to see a little more diversity in the coming yeah. weeks, but... Um, yeah, because I would say, honestly, uh, at least for me, and I think for Cam, too, we are uh, much more into other history than American history. Yeah. This is kind of just, like, accidentally happened. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's sort of a fluke. I feel like we set out to very much not do an American history podcast. And, yeah. like, we've almost exclusively done one. I think we've done five American history episodes. And also, like, episodes. very rec- recent history, too. Yeah. There's been, like, some current events. and Like, a lot of people that are still alive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Doc should still be alive. He got done yeah. dirty by the American healthcare system. He did. Uh, my man, the Codfather, bless up. I don't yeah. Remember if, uh, I don't remember if we gave you the update. He's out of jail. He's a free man. Yeah. What up, Carlos Rafael? We love you. Oh, yeah. And another update that I meant to give like three weeks ago. I found out recently after the fact that I have a personal family connection to the Boston molasses flood. Oh, um, oh word. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out that my great, 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 great uncle was the molasses. Oh, 
Okay. No, I, so it was something like uh, my great-grandfather's father. So what is that, my great-great-grandfather? Or maybe my great-great-great-grandfather was uh, employed a few by... There. What? There's some greats in there. There's some greats. He was great. He was employed in some capacity by one of the lawyers working on the class action suit um, against the ethanol company after that after that whole thing went down. Um and I didn't know that at all. It's never come up in my family. No one's ever mentioned it to me. I had no inkling of that when I wrote that episode. And then after the fact, like, everyone in my family, my uncle and my, my aunt and my mom and my grandmother were all like, oh, yeah, you, yeah you, you didn't know about this? And I'm like, well, I mean, I, I didn't just assume. I didn't just assume. Hey, hey, Ma, do I, do we got any molasses people? Yeah, I'm working on this thing with Evan. Yeah, 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 the podcast. Hey, listen, you know about the molasses flood? Any relatives any involved in that? that? Yeah. Do we got any folks involved under the molasses, inside of the molasses, the one dumping the molasses? <laughs> hey, I don't come from a long line of dumpers, okay? You you take that back. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. All right, well, so yep. that's, that's a wrap tonight, folks, and uh, keep it real. We'll see you guys next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Bye. -bye. <laughs> <laughs>